Good morning. So uh, this is the time when our, our kids will be dismissed for Children's Church. So if, if they're headed, headed that way, then they're going to go out with Miss Ginger, it looks like. And so they'll head to the other building. And as Ashley said, we do have a staffed nursery over there as well and a, a cry room um, in the back of this building, too. Um, I will say, too, uh, a lot of our, uh, our youth group students are leaving for camp today. And so, yeah, so uh, what we're going to do at the end of our worship today is we're going to have a prayer over our students. And so do we have any leaving? Um, we may bring, yeah, bring her back over at the end, so as long as she knows that. Because we're going to, uh, we usually close our service with a prayer, and so today Kevin's going to close our service with a prayer over our students who are headed to camp this week. Because uh, camp is, is uh, if you... If you've ever been to camp, maybe you have great experiences with camp, or you probably have great memories of camp or terrible memories of camp. So either way, prayers are good to send you off with <laughs> into that environment. So we're going to send uh, Katie Ann and, and our youth group members who are headed off to camp in, in prayer this morning to close out uh, our service. Um, when I was a, a youth minister at the Huntsville Church of Christ, we had a guy who we supported his prison ministry, actually, and he would come in uh, every few months, about once every three months, to preach. And he would usually begin his sermon with something like, I'm not going to be lengthy in my discourse this morning. And then he would proceed to preach a very normal length sermon every time. <laughs> Why do you have to lead with that every time? Because <laughs> I would be surrounded by teenagers, and I'm thinking, you're giving our teenagers false hope that this is going to be... <laughs> Short, and it never was. It never was. He would get rolling and then be long. So uh, I hated it when, when preachers would say things like that. This is going to be maybe the shortest sermon I've ever given. <laughs> so, but it's going to have the longest preamble to the sermon that I've ever given. So <laughs> the length will be about the same. Long preamble, short amble, or whatever, whatever comes after preamble. I don't know. <laughs> Because um, we're in a series about Paul, and so the focus of the sermon today is really going to be on a guy named Titus, but it's going to take us quite a while to work up to Titus. So just hold on with me, because we're doing some background stuff on Paul. We're kind of thinking in this series about uh, a lot of our theology that we have comes from the writings of this one man, Paul. Um, actually, the, the earliest writings that we have about Jesus are from Paul. Paul's writings actually predate the writings, at least, of the Gospels. Um, and so Paul is very important to Christian faith, uh, to the transmission of Christian faith, to the record uh, of what we have of Jesus and his ministry. And so what do we, we're kind of asking, or these questions that I've kind of been thinking about in this series are, what do we know about Paul? Uh, how do we see that uh, kind of come out in his writings? And then what can we take from that and use from that as we try to be Jesus followers um, as well. And so that's going to kind of lead us to Titus this morning, and we'll get there eventually. But first, we've got some work to do before we get to Titus. Uh, and to start kind of some of that work, uh, I'm going to start with a confession. It's something I, I don't want to tell you about, but I feel like it fits the sermon well, so I'm going to. And this confession is that my, my body and my heart and my spirit have finally betrayed me to the point that Friday we went to watch a movie and, and I cried. I told you I didn't want to tell you this, but I have to. So, 
Because I've always been the guy who's like, I will never cry in movies. Who cries in movies, right? It's just a movie. You don't cry in movies. Um, and so there was a, a moment, though, a few years ago where I started to notice this shift. And, and I started to notice at the end in these emotionally charged moments in movies, I was like, I feel like I could cry in this moment, but I'm not. Because <laughs> that's not what you do in movies. I'm not becoming my mom. My mom would cry. My mom literally cries during commercials. I'm like, that's not... <laughs> I can't do that. Uh, and so I've been able to always hold back the tears until Friday <laughs> in stupid Toy Story 4. <laughs> no spoilers for Toy Story 4, but I did not make it out of there without crying. It gets to the end of Toy Story 4, and I'm, I, I have this realization that it is like it is hurting my face to not let the tears out, <laughs> and I should just give in to that. And so finally I did and was like glad that it didn't end with me just like ugly crying in the theater. And so the movie ends, and I'm like wiping tears from my eyes, hoping that my family doesn't look down and see me, and they didn't. Um, and so I think, though, there was like one moment that this shifted in my life, and it was when I had... When we had Isley, and now we have two kids. And so these kids are now the reason that I get emotional at the end of these movies. Um, and I used to could separate these things, and, you know, it's just a movie. But now, at the end of all these, at these emotionally charged moments in movies, I find myself simply thinking about my kids or my relationship to my kids or what my kids are going to be and do as they grow up or the struggles they're going to they're have as they go through life. And, and all of these things just bring out these things in, within me that used to not come out. And so having kids is this moment in my life that gave me a different perspective on a lot of things and completely shifted how I interact with certain things, including movies. And so in the past, my interpretation or the way that I would go into movies was, it's just a movie, why would you cry at that? And now I find myself and my family and my kids in all these situations as I watch a movie, and it brings out this response that, that I didn't used to have. There was a moment there where something shifted and something new entered the picture that gave me a new filter through which I viewed a lot of things, movies included. And I think we find something similar in the life of Paul. Uh, Paul, when we first meet him, he's referred to as Saul. Uh, there's never actually like this dramatic name change that we sometimes kind of think of between Saul and Paul. Just at one point in Acts, um, Luke says, by the way, he's also called Paul. And then he calls him Paul from there on out. Um, so when we meet him, he's known as Saul. Um, and Saul is a violent man. Uh, Saul is, is uh, really seen as an enemy of the early church. He's, he's arresting Christians. He's having Christians put in jail. Uh, Christians, at least how we would describe it, he's, he's having Jesus followers, these Jewish people who have turned their lives over to the way, as it's called in Acts, or to following Jesus. He's arresting them, having put in jail, um, having them killed. Uh, we know in one specific case with Stephen, he is there basically supervising the stoning, the killing of Stephen in Jerusalem. So Paul is, is a violent, ruthless, zealous man. But he is not those things because he hates God. In fact, he is those things because he is intensely and zealously devoted to God, to his God, Yahweh, and to his interpretation of Scripture. 
and he is willing to do anything necessary to preserve his way of reading and interpreting scripture and his view of God. Uh, that may sound a little relevant for some of our issues today, right? It usually doesn't result in violence, um, but sometimes we, we very stringently and zealously hold to our view of God and our interpretation of scripture. Sometimes that re- results in violence in our world. More often in our lives, it results in broken relationships or split churches or Facebook debates or whatever else. Uh, but Paul is defending this view of, of God and Scripture that he has, and he's, he thinks, I'm going to pursue this by any means necessary. Uh, so last week, we looked at this kind of resume uh, of the flesh that Paul gives in Philippians. He says there are certain people out there who are putting confidence in the flesh, confidence in their own ability to do things, confidence in their ability to pursue righteousness by their own means. And he says, if you want to play that game, I can, my resume stands up against anyone's. And two of the things that we looked at in that list, he says, as it relates to the law, uh, I'm zealous uh, and I'm a Pharisee. And so what those things meant to the Jewish culture, to, to his Jewish audience Uh, Zealots were a group of people or a movement of people who, as we see Paul do in Jerusalem, um, would pursue their way of thinking about Israel, about God, in any means possible, including violence. Uh, Pharisees were also intensely devoted to the Torah or to the law, uh, and not only to the written law, but to the oral law as well. This is what we find often brings Jesus into conflict with the Pharisees because they have this interpretation of the law that Jesus begins to question and say, well, maybe you've got some things wrong here. And when you put these two together, a zealous Pharisee, you have this picture of Paul who wreaks havoc and terror over the early church as we read through it in Acts. Uh, And and Paul has this idea of who God is and how one should go about following God. And for Paul and other zealots and Pharisees, that looked like perfectly keeping the law. Pharisees believed if, if, if all the Jewish people would just keep the Torah perfectly then, then the, the fulfillment of God's kingdom would come. This is what had to happen for the fulfillment of the law to take place, was for all Jewish people to perfectly keep Torah. And so you can imagine, if this is your filter, if the filter is we all have to get this exactly right, you can understand why they would even violently pursue that means, right? Because everyone's got to get this exactly right in order for the fulfillment of God's kingdom to come. And then on the way to Damascus... Paul is headed to Damascus to basically export his persecution of of Christians from Jerusalem to Damascus. He's gotten permission to take this act on the road. Now he's going to go round up uh, Jesus' followers in Damascus as well. He's on the road to Damascus, and he has this experience with Jesus. And now he's faced with some questions. Uh, What if the fulfillment of the law isn't in getting it right? What if the fulfillment of the law is, is Jesus? What if everything has been pointing to Jesus, not me getting everything right? Uh, What if I'm not at the center of my righteousness story? What if Jesus is? I think that's the ultimate question. We're going to come back to that at the end. What What if I'm not at the center of how I pursue righteousness, but Jesus is? What does that change? Uh, It turns out it changes a lot. 
as we're going to see, Paul takes to task this issue of circumcision a lot in his writings. Because for the, the law, for the people who are pursuing righteousness through the law, this was the main issue, circumcision. And so Paul is taking this to task because he sees the danger for individuals and for the church collectively of what happens when you put yourself at the center of your pursuit of righteousness and not Christ. And so circumcision isn't the theological issue that it was for that it that it isn't the theological issue for us that it was for them. But we struggle just the same with this idea of putting ourselves at the center of our pursuit of righteousness um, in, in many ways. That it's about me getting everything right. It's about my preferences in, in church. It's about whatever, fill in the blank, the ways that we put ourselves at the center of our pursuit of righteousness. And if you remove circumcision, the specifics of circumcision from the conversation, that's what Paul is fighting against, putting ourselves at the center of the story instead of Christ. And so just as, as my experience with, with having children influenced the way that I interact with movies and gave me this new filter through which I see the world, this encounter with Jesus gives Paul a new filter through which he sees Scripture, through which he sees God, through which he sees the world, through which he sees other people, and his interaction with that. And so after Damascus, he basically goes away for about a decade. We looked at this on Wednesday night, so I'm not going to recap all of this. He ends up going back up to Tarsus. We have a map here. I should have showed this earlier. Uh, so this is where Paul was down here in Jerusalem. Then he's on the way up here to Damascus when he has somewhere in here, he has this, this experience with Jesus. Um, and then he does a little bit of traveling back in here, and he ends up going down to Arabia for a while and then to Jerusalem for about two weeks. And then he goes back up here and spends about 10 years back up here in the Tarsus area before we hear from him again. If you're here on Wednesday night, you're like, that was a lot shorter than what you did on Wednesday. So <laughs> um, that was the Cliff Notes version. So Paul goes back up to Tarsus for about 10 years and is working through all of this because this is life-changing stuff. Um, and, and here's what Paul comes to believe, and I think it's why he hits against some of this stuff so hard. Uh, and this is where the metaphor of the movie kind of breaks down a little bit, as metaphors often do. Uh, because it would be foolish for me to claim that the only way you could have an emotional response to movies was to have children, right? Um, that's not the point. It isn't to say you can only, you know, cry during Toy Story 4 if you have kids. Like, everyone will cry during Toy Story 4. So that's, that's what I'm telling myself, at least. <laughs> um, there are other ways you can go about getting different filters in life, different experiences, whatever. But what Paul comes to believe is that if the message of Jesus doesn't change the way you view God and life and Scripture, you've completely missed the point and you're doing it wrong. There are a lot of other things that Paul is okay with you having differences of opinion on. You want to have differences of opinion on what we should ink, eat? <laughs> I combined eat and drink. I told you I was going to make up a word at some point today, Scott. There, I did it. <laughs> ink isn't really a made-up word, but in that way it is. <laughs> Uh, you want to have differences of opinion on what we should eat? That's fine. Difference of opinion on what we should drink? That's fine. Kingdom of God isn't about eating and drinking. You can have differences of opinion about a lot of stuff. You can't have a difference of opinion about who is at the center of your righteousness story. Is it about you or is it about Jesus? That's where we draw the line. <laughs> Paul says you can't have a difference of opinion about that um, and be a follower of Yahweh uh, because this... The resurrection of Jesus changes the whole story, which is going to lead us in a minute to Titus. I promise we're going to get there. Uh, 
But Paul goes up, spends about 10 years up here um, in Antioch. Uh, I mean, uh, before he gets to Antioch, in Tarsus. Can you go back to that map for a minute, Zeke? Uh, so Paul, uh, and you can just leave this up here for a minute. He goes up here to Tarsus. Meanwhile, Paul and, and the terror that he has caused on the church in Jerusalem has left Jerusalem in a state of panic and turmoil. Uh, and, and the stoning of Stephen seems to kind of be the flashpoint for this. That after the stoning of Stephen, the, the Jesus followers in Jerusalem are, are like, all right, this isn't safe anymore. We, we've got to get out of here. So there are a small number who stay in Jerusalem, but a lot of the others flee there and head out to all the surrounding area around Jerusalem. And as they go, they begin spreading the news of Jesus to other Jewish people that they come in contact along with along the way. Uh, and so if you, if you go out from Jerusalem, at this point, the Jewish people are really scattered throughout this whole region. And so as Jewish people, Jewish Jewish. Jesus' followers leave Jerusalem. That's a lot of J words. Um, they encounter a lot of other Jewish people, and so they're spreading the news of Jesus as they go. All of them containing it to Jewish people, except for one group who makes it all the way up here to Antioch. And when they get to Antioch, uh, Antioch is a large city, probably about a quarter of a million people. It's a, as you can see here, kind of by its location, uh, it's in a major trade route. Um, and this is where a lot of ships would come in, and this is just a, a thoroughfare for a lot of activity. It's a melting pot of cultures and people. And so whether it was because of, of the attitudes and thoughts of the people who end up in Antioch or a result of kind of the culture they find in Antioch, we don't really know. But when they get to Antioch, they do something different in Antioch. The people who make it to Antioch start telling Greeks as well about Jesus. And now you've got this new type of community that is forming that isn't formed around ourselves at the center of righteousness. It's not formed around Jewishness as the center. It's formed around Christ in completely new ways, so much so that they're allowing Jewish people and Greek people to come together as one in this new community, in this new family. This creates some questions. What does this look like now for community to be formed not around our Jewishness, but around Jesus. Uh, and so news of this new community in Antioch makes it back to Jerusalem. They say, we got to go find out about this. Uh, who's somebody that we can send up there that's going to uh, find out what's happening there with, with gentleness, with respect, someone who knows about our history and our background and can make good decisions of what this looks like now. So they send up there a guy named Barnabas. Uh, Barnabas' name literally means son of encouragement. Uh, he was known by the disciples as someone whose gift was first and foremost to encourage. So they say, we're going to send this encourager up there to see what's happening. So Barnabas goes up there. He gets up to Antioch. And somewhere along the way, it seems like Barnabas has a thought. I wonder what's happening with that Saul guy that was from Tarsus. <laughs> Uh, because about 10 years ago, when Paul makes it to Jerusalem, all the Jewish people are afraid of him for good reason. Because he's either been persecuting them or now he's on the other side and they're kind of wary of him. Uh, and so everyone's mad at, at Paul now, Saul, at this point. Uh, and so uh, someone has to put their arm around Paul and say, it's okay, I'm going to vouch for him. And it's Barnabas who puts his arm around Saul and says, hey, 
I know what, what this guy's been through. I'm going to vouch for him personally. That allows Saul to at least stay alive in Jerusalem before he leaves and goes back to Tarsus. And so Luke tells us in Acts that as Barnabas gets up here, oh, hold on, as Barnabas gets up here into Antioch, he goes to Tarsus to find Saul. Doesn't tell us why, but my guess is he thinks this is some new stuff that we're trying in Antioch. And I'm going to need someone whose perspective has completely been flipped of what it means to be someone who pursues righteousness in Christ. I need someone who knows about our Jewish history, but can also speak to the fact that that no longer matters. So who can I get to do that? Oh yeah, there was this guy named Saul. So he goes to get Saul. Saul and Barnabas then go and they spend about a year together in Antioch. And again, I think the, the question now that Paul has been stewing on, um, at least in, in the way that I picture it in his time in Tarsus, is what counts? Uh, because I used to think that following the law was what counted. But what counts now? And for Paul... Uh, the thing that now counts is Jesus. Uh, and so last week, we looked at some strong language uh, that Paul uses throughout his writings, and a lot of that strong language was connected to circumcision. Paul talks a lot about circumcision, a lot, specifically in two books, Galatians uh, and Romans, which are two books written to melting pots of cultures where they have Jewish people coming in and saying, actually, you've got to be circumcised if you want to follow Jesus. And Paul says, no, that's not accurate. Let me tell you why. And so for Paul, circumcision becomes a test of how you are pursuing righteousness. It's a test to determine what you think counts. Uh, and so twice in Galatians, Paul says that circumcision doesn't count. Uh, the first time is in Galatians 5, verse 6. And again, these writings are done well long after uh, this time that, that Barnabas and, and Paul are in Antioch, uh, but it gives us a little insight into his thinking and to why Paul was a good vessel uh, to go with Barnabas in Antioch. So Galatians 5, 6, Paul says, For in Christ neither circumcision nor uncircumcision has any value. The only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. Then in chapter 6, he says, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision means anything. What counts is the new creation. Um, now, again, we read those words, and they are kind of devoid of emotional attachment to us because we don't put a lot of theological significance around circumcision. But this was the most important thing to Jewish people holding on to their kind of former way of thinking before Christ. And so if you were to think about what is the thing that is most important to me in my Christian faith, whatever that is for you, imagine someone writing you a letter and saying, actually, that doesn't count. Uh, even if you think that thing counts, it would offend you for someone to say that it doesn't. <laughs> and that's what Paul is doing here. He's saying that, that stuff, it doesn't count anymore. Um, and I think there's a difference in saying it doesn't count and it doesn't matter. Because to say it doesn't count means, this is again, this is how we were pursuing things before, but through Christ... We've got a different filter. Uh, when we pursue all these things through Christ, everything else looks different and is put in the proper perspective. Uh, this is important to Paul. This is an important point to drive home because he used to think that things like circumcision counted. This is how you added up your righteousness. These are the things that you counted. But post-resurrection, that doesn't work anymore for Paul. Uh, this is a quote 
uh, from N.T. Wright about how Paul's perspective has shifted post this encounter he has with the resurrected Jesus. It says, Paul believed that through Jesus and his death, the one God had overcome the powers that had held the world in their grip. And that meant that all humans, not just Jews, could be set free to worship the one God. The Jesus-shaped message of liberation included forgiveness for all past misdeeds, and this message of forgiveness meant that there could be no barriers between Jewish Messiah people and non-Jewish people, non-Jewish Messiah people. To erect such barriers would mean denying that Jesus had won the messianic victory. Saul the zealot had expected a Messiah to defeat the pagan hordes. Paul the apostle believed that that Messiah had defeated the dark powers that stood behind all evil. In other words, Christ has already done what we expected the law to do. And so now there can be no, no division between Jewish people and non-Jewish people. This is what makes Paul the perfect messenger to go with Barnabas to Antioch. Uh, again, our issue here may not be circumcision, cir- circumcision, but we still struggle in putting up barriers. And to Paul, the cross and empty tomb are the ultimate barrier smashers. So much so that they uh, have not only removed the barriers between Jews and Gentiles, but caused Paul to look back and see that that was actually the plan all along. Uh, we're going to look next week as the, uh, at some of the ways that Paul kind of looks back at Old Testament stuff, what we would call Old Testament stuff, and looks at it differently now. We're going to come to that next week. Uh, but post-resurrection, none of this stuff like circumcision counts, Paul would argue, because Christ has become the mediator of a new covenant. This is all very new, and it calls for a new type of person individually and a new type of people collectively. And neither the person nor the people should find their identity in their nationality, their Jewishness, or in their ability to do enough to gain righteousness. All right, now the sermon's going to (laughs) start. All of that brings us then to Titus. I told you, it's going to be a short one, so... All of this brings us to Titus, because Paul and Barnabas have now been in Antioch together for about a year, and they've got a chance now to go back to Jerusalem. And now, this grand experiment that they've been working on in Antioch is going to be put to the test, because now they're going to have to go back to Jerusalem and to defend to the elders in Jerusalem what they've been doing in Antioch. And so, in order to do that... They take this young guy named Titus, and they bring Titus with them to Jerusalem. Because Titus is a Greek, and they haven't forced Titus to be circumcised and to adhere to all the Jewish laws that they adhered to as Jews up in this new community that they've got in Antioch. And so they're going to bring Titus with them to Jerusalem and basically present him before the elders, namely um, Peter uh, and James, or the, the ones who are most kind of often talked about here, um, and say, okay, here's what we're doing in Antioch. What do you think? <laughs> uh, so here's how Paul describes it himself in Galatians. This is in Galatians 2. Uh, Galatians 2, beginning in verse 1. It says, then after 14 years, 
I went up to Jerusalem, which is a little, can you go back to that map, Zeke? Um, it's confusing from a map, because they're going up to Jerusalem, but Jerusalem is south. That's not the way we, we describe things. But Jerusalem, Jerusalem is up on a high mountain, basically. So that's why in Scripture, anytime it talks about going up to Jerusalem, they're talking about physically going up, not directionally, like we would think about directionally. Uh, so we went up to Jerusalem uh, to meet privately with those esteemed as leaders. I presented to them the gospel that I preach among the Gentiles. Listen to what he says. I wanted to be sure I was not running and had been running my race in vain. Paul says, I've got 14 years invested in this now. And now we're going to Jerusalem to put this to the test. Is this going to hold up? Um, So we're going to see. So he says, yet... Not even Titus, who was with me, was compelled to be circumcised, even though he was a Greek. This matter arose because some false believers had infiltrated our ranks to spy on the freedom we have in Christ and to make us slaves. Uh, Because here's what Paul comes to believe. That in Christ, we have freedom from law. We have freedom from all these other things that have been shackles on the Jewish people. And Paul says, anything that tries to make us go back to that is a form of slavery, uh, which Jewish people knew all too well. So Paul says, by by trying to make people adhere to this, they are calling people back into slavery, and we're done with that. We're We're living in freedom. So he says, we did not give in to them for a moment so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. This is how important this is for Paul. Paul says, this is why we're clinging, this is why this is, we, we've been preaching this, and why I'm, I'm coming down so hard on you, Galatians, at this point in the future, and this is why they're fighting for this so much, so much in Antioch. Because what we are fighting here will be preserved for future generations and, and the, fu- the, the freedom of Christ followers from now forever on. Uh, because the truth of the gospel is that in Christ all are welcome. That in Christ, circumcision has no value because your righteousness comes not from your own action, but from Jesus. For Paul and Barnabas, Titus leaving Jerusalem and going back home to Antioch without being circumcised is a milestone moment. It affirms what they've been building in Antioch, a community where there's not a Jewish table and a non-Jewish table. There's simply one table full of people surrendering under the banner of the cross and the resurrection. They are as diverse in many ways as they are homogenous in their devotion to Christ. And this is why Paul writes later in this same letter of Galatians, There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. This is what matters for for Paul, being in Christ. He says, If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. Again, heirs according to the promise was a designation reserved for Jewish people. And Paul says, not anymore. (laughs) Jesus has changed all that. And so what matters now is being in Christ. Uh, And he goes on to say, or actually right before that he says, So in Christ you are all children of God through faith, for all of you were baptized into Christ, have clothed yourselves with Christ. Now before we wrap up, I want to say one thing here about I, th- I think a key difference between baptism and circumcision. Because on the surface, it may look like Paul is switching out one w- ritual for another. 
saying circumcision doesn't matter, baptism matters. That's not what Paul's doing. Paul's doing something much weightier than that. Uh, because uh, this is not simply an exchange of rituals, it's an exchange of perspectives. Uh, again, one that removes myself from the center and puts Jesus at the center. Uh, because holding on to circumcision meant holding on to myself at the center of my pursuit of righteousness. That it's about getting everything right and doing everything right. Putting baptism um, in place of that instead says it's about being in Christ. And, and to Paul, the waters of baptism are my connection with Christ and my putting Christ on in baptism. And so it's not about me getting everything right or doing everything right. It's about being in Christ. And so I think that's a key difference in the way that he discusses circumcision and discusses baptism. Uh, with Jesus at the center, having brought down barriers of division in his resurrection, it's easier now to see where everyone is invited to a place at the table. Because if I'm at the head of the table, then I'm going to expect everyone around the table to look like me. But if Jesus is at the head of the table, then we're just a bunch of sinners surrounding Jesus, reliant on him for our redemption and our salvation and our justification and our righteousness. And that completely changes how we see community and the table. And it's why Paul is so hung up on the circumcision stuff and saying, y'all got to let go of it because it's poison. For Paul, what counts now is faith expressing itself through love. It's being a new creation in Christ, and what counts for Paul is Jesus. Uh, and so in just a minute, we're going to celebrate Christ and the opportunity for new creation that is provided through his resurrection as we share in communion together. Each, mo each, each Sunday, we remember the life of Jesus. We proclaim the death and resurrection of Jesus around this communion meal, around this meal that invites all of us as equals to the foot of the cross and to remember the body given for us. And so as the band comes back up this morning and as we turn our uh, attention to the table in song as we'll sing together, I want to invite us to consider a simple question this morning. Uh, what counts? What are you counting in your faith, in your spiritual journey? Um, and is Jesus at the center of what you are pursuing and what you are counting? Uh, may we consider those things as we stand and worship together uh, and as we share in communion uh, in just a few minutes this morning. So let's stand and sing together.
stay standing as we pray our prayer of confession together, and I'll pray the parts in white, and then together we'll pray the words in yellow. Father, we confess to each other and to you, our Creator, that we fall short of being what we were created to be and what we have committed ourselves to be. Hear us, forgive us, renew our resolve to build the kingdom of Christ. We often seek out the easiest paths, paths of least involvement in places where we might be uncomfortable, or paths of self-centeredness. Hear us, forgive us, renew our resolve to build the kingdom of righteousness. We confess that we have not loved you with all our heart, with all our soul, with all our mind, and with all our strength. Bring us out of darkness, Lord, and into the light of your love. Hear us, forgive us, renew our resolve to build the kingdom of light. Forgive us for getting so caught up in the world's trappings and its false messages of hope that we lose sight of the hope of the kingdom, which brings healing and peace to a world in turmoil. Hear us, forgive us, renew our resolve to build the kingdom of peace. May we resolve to become more kingdom-minded, to be peacemakers here and now. Amen. You may be seated. 